The following presentation was recorded live by the Jewish Ethics Institute. So, today, today's topic is um, clawbacks um, in the context of um, charities, as we know. Uh, there's been a number of uh, Ponzi schemes that have affected the Jewish community. There's a number of Ponzi schemes that have affected the Jewish community over the last few years. Ponzi, by the way, just to set the record straight, was not Jewish. Uh, Mr. Ponzi himself, uh, he, he was the guy it's named after. He, I think it was in 1921 or something like that. I read. They didn't invent 1920. It, they just perfected it. Right, August 1920 was Mr. Ponzi's scheme. Um, now, the question becomes, it's not only related to Ponzi schemes, the issue, the question I would like to address today is what happens when you receive funds um, that you know were stolen, okay, and how does it work when you, when you accepted them in good faith? You didn't know they were stolen, let's say from a donor, let's say it's a charity, Shul is building a new building and, uh, and they're making a fundraising campaign for the building and then they realize um, after the building built or even before, the money they received um, what might have been from some scam. Um, so do they have to return the money? How does that work? What happens if the donor's name is on the building? That's a whole different question. Do you have to take his name down? Um, do you want his name associated with your institution? That's less of a halachic issue, maybe, depending on... Well, we'll, we'll talk about that. Okay. Um, so the issue is, as we know, first of all, Madoff, which was the king of Panzis, um, he himself was Jewish, he was on the board of YU, millions of dollars. He donated millions of dollars to YU itself, to Hadassah. Madoff? Madoff, yeah. Um, he, was on, he was on the board of directors of YU, actually. Donated millions of dollars to YU, Hadassah, many other charities received money from him. So the question becomes, there's a concept within, within American law called a clawback, which I believe the rule of thumb is if, if you, you, uh, if it's found out that the money was stolen, so the people who have stolen from have a right to retrieve, not the principal, but any interest that was made on the Ponzi scheme from the recipients. Even from good faith recipients, it means innocent recipients. That's, just, that's, oh, that's the mechanism. They can't get the principal back. Because the principal is the investor. That wasn't stolen money. But they, even though they got it in return, um, the meaning, meaning again, the people who the money was stolen from can't go to to other people who received money mm -hmm. from the scheme. Um, they can go only to claw back on the interest, not on the, on the meaning on the on whatever money was made over and above the principal. Okay, as we'll see, Allah doesn't necessarily do it. So, so the so again, the question is, um, what happens in those cases? And, and that's what I put on top of so A few of the questions is, what is the Jewish law on clawbacks where investors who receive phantom profits are required to return them? This is not only relevant to charities, this is relevant, as we'll see, across the board. Even if someone is not a charity, they invested, made off, and they got back money. Can people go and claw back their money? Question number two, must a charity return funds donated by Ponzi scheme? Okay, so we're not getting into now, if when you accepted the money, you knew it was stolen money, that's a whole different story, and that's a different question of donations to be addressed, I believe, in 2011 or 2012 in this class. Anyone remembers? So we discussed taking donations from ill-begotten places, um, meaning, let's say, Shul knows the money when they're taking it is stolen. That's a whole different question, which is a pasuk in the Torah, by the way, believe it or not. The Torah talks about taking money from a prostitute, that it's prohibited 
to take a sheep from a prostitute if she uses it for the base of Migdash. Talks about the base of Migdash, let's say being used as a carbon. Let's say the base of Migdash receives a sheep that was used as payment of service for a prostitute. Okay, it's called Estanzona. Torah says that's prohibited to, to bring the base of Migdash, cannot accept it. Okay, now, I, and now once you launder it, by the way, let's say I take that sheep, let's say the prostitute takes the sheep she received as payment for her services and sold the sheep and gives the cash to the base of Migdash, that will take. Okay, that will find it. Okay, once the money is laundered, it then becomes kosher in the, in the Torah's eyes. So, so that's a whole different class. We gave that class already. Today we're discussing where, again, the money, at the time you took it, you didn't know what the source of the money was. Okay, now the question becomes a question of clawback. Can we go and take back, the, am I obligated to return the money to its rightful owner, or quote-unquote its rightful owner, when it was taken? So that's a different question. Yeah. Okay. So, because if you name the building, can you take the name off and still take keep the money? Well, that's a different question. Are you allowed to take it if there was a contractual um, a contract on the name? You know, can no, you, even if the, even like, if you're not giving back I'm the money, can you? You know, we had Enron, so a lot of these places had a lot of schools to you know fast out library or whatever. Oh, yes. <laughs> No, I couldn't. Uh, that's debatable. Whether how that money was gotten, whether it's, it's, it's all. I mean, yeah, I'm saying it's gotten illegally. If it was gotten illegally, then. Depends on how the money itself. Yes, yeah, so that's the question. That's the question. So, so let's see. So, so, the, so just to give the basic background on theft, it's important to know. And I think I just realized as I'm talking, it's relevant to Pesach too. We'll talk about it in a second. Is in laws of theft, in Hilchos Geneva, if, if a thief steals an item, okay? This is number one here on the sheet. So the victim retains ownership of the item. That means, let's say I steal Brian's uh, car. Okay? So, if I, you still own the car. Okay? Just because I stole it doesn't mean I'm the owner now. It, technically, you're still the owner. That's the way it works. Okay? Now, therefore, if now I sell the car to Scotty, if I, if I give this car to Scotty, I sell it to Scotty, your car. Okay? You can go, it still belongs to you, therefore you can go straight to Scotty and take it back. You don't have to come and retrieve the, only from me, the thief. You can go to Scotty, the innocent third party, and take back your car. Because it still belongs, it's still, it's still you retain your ownership, even though it changed hands. Okay? So you can recover your belongings. And then he would have to come to me and get back his money. Because I sold him a car that was stolen. Because basically, in essence, that's what I put down here. That's the, that's the cloud major halachic principle known as I can't sell you the Brooklyn Bridge right so if I sell if I selling Scotty your car he doesn't know it's stolen what I'm doing in essence is selling the Brooklyn Bridge because it's not my property to sell it's your property right so that's selling the Brooklyn Bridge halachically you can't sell someone the Brooklyn Bridge okay now the rabbis had a concern in the, in the times of the Gemara so that's biblically speaking the times in the Gemara they had a concern um, which was known as Takana Sashuk. They changed the rules. The reason why they changed the rules is that even though you still own your car when it's in Scotty's hand, the problem is if someone's buying something in good faith, and every time he has to buy, he's buying something in good faith, he has to go now and check what the source is and make sure that it wasn't from China and stolen property and whatever, and, this, and check, and it's going to affect the commerce in a big way. Because everyone's going to have to start doing checks. You know, they're going and buying something in good faith. So therefore, Chazal said... It's called a holder in due course. That means the holder does not know that there was an issue. Right. He bought in good faith. 
So the, he, doesn't, he doesn't have to assume it was stolen. So they said we, they were concerned about affecting, it affecting cameras. And therefore, they, 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 they uh, made a takana, something called takana tashuk. Shuk means the marketplace, takana means an injunction of the marketplace, that they were concerned they didn't want this to affect business. Therefore, they said that uh, if someone buys something in good faith and they had no reason to believe it was a stolen item, then you can't go and take it back from them. You have to come to me and get back your money. He, you could only take it from him if he is going to get reimbursed for it. It means if he, if, if, if either you'll reimburse him or I'm going to reimburse him, and he's getting reimbursed, that's the only time you can go and take back your stolen item. Okay, that's what Takana Sashuk means. So that's what I put down here. So meaning, again, it has to be done in good faith. That means, let's say, if you, anyone who grew up in New York City knows if you're walking down the streets of Manhattan and a guy on the subway and the guy comes out with you and, you know, with 12 watches on his hands, he's want to buy a Rolex, right? So you know, listen, it's a good deal, you know, but you know that there's a good chance that it's not exactly going to be from a valid source, the Rolex. It's the same okay. logic. Uh, same example. You grew up in New York, you know, the watch sold on sidewalk is baloney. Yeah, baloney. It's a good a, deal. Here's a guy who no, came out to Iowa farm to his first trip to Manhattan, and he doesn't know anybody. Yeah, but that's, that's, he's an idiot. He's okay, just, but still, he's in Iowa, so. Like he said, well, what's the language? What's the legal term? Yeah, All during due course. All? All during due course. Does All during due course. So no, what's normal, right? No, if the guy's from Iowa, that's not reason. You know? People from Iowa. I mean, the assumption is, I know you might smile, uh, but uh, you're from Iowa? Yeah. He is from Iowa. Yeah. You, you knew that? That's why I said oh. it. Right, so meaning, meaning due course means it's the norm. Someone's coming out with you on the street and going, you want to buy a Rolex, or he's opening the back of his truck and going like this. You know, you, wherever you're from, you need to know. Due course would require you to know that, that there's something fishy going on. Your guy's selling a Rolex for 150 bucks yeah. on the streets of Manhattan. Wherever you're from, you need to know that there's a problem. <laughs> Even from Iowa. Um, so, so, so you're right. Knows whatever would be due course. That's what uh, I think. The same would apply in Allah as 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 an American. So, so again, um, that's what I wrote. Here. So, an innocent purchaser was unaware that he was purchasing stolen goods need not return them to the owner unless he's reimbursed for his purchase price. So, Scotty now finds out the car is stolen. He doesn't have to go and return the car to you if he bought it truly in good faith. He, unless I'm going to reimburse. If he knows he's getting money for the car. Then he, would have, then he has an obligation to return it. Otherwise, he has no obligation to return the car to you. Okay, it's my problem. I stole it from you. I have to, you have to get the money from me. You can't go and, and take it from me. Okay? Um, good faith means that he did not know, he had no reason to know that the merchandise was stolen. The concern was that if inadvertently buying a stolen object would result in a total loss, people would be reluctant to buy merchandise and general commerce would suffer. Okay? Um, now, so this, so the key point here is the, the goal was to, that it shouldn't affect commas. But let's say it's a gift. So for example, so two things are applied. First of all, if he had knowledge that theft or purchase were made under suspicious circumstances, again, the case of Manhattan, where the guy is rolling up his sleeve and selling you rollers in the subway, so then you should have done, that was due course, you should have realized. So in that case, then Brian would have every right to go and get back his Rolex from Scotty, even though Scotty didn't steal it. Okay, because Scotty's from Iowa, and he, uh, and he should have known that, that was, this was a stolen Rolex. So then you would be allowed to get it. Because there's no, that's, in that case, it wasn't purchased in good faith. Number two is... Yes, sir? I find it interesting that the rabbis really kind of changed course on this. When he, it could have been <laughs> done in a different manner. Yes, maybe a little bit more strict. Right. But without harming <laughs> that 
what do we have now? When we are visiting rabbis and people collecting money, they're always bringing up references. So even in the marketplace, there are people who have a reputation of being reputable, you know, that, you know, as opposed to people who aren't. So it's almost, well, in the sense that we have such a fear of, of, um, of harming commerce that it took the, the victim had now has no right to collect straight from if was, if the purchase was done in good faith, yeah. As opposed to, you know, maybe the purchaser, say Scotty in this case, who's the purchaser in the marketplace, right. should have dealt with a reputable vendor, whether it has references or somebody. He did. Listen, let's take Madoff. Madoff was someone who was totally reputable. He had the great. He had a great name. He was the head of the SEC. More for money. So give the case, rabbi yeah. example. Okay. What about Rabbi Pinto? Okay, so who, um, case, you know, huge people were giving him money, and he wound up being a total fraud. So in that case, I understand. Huh? I don't know if that's true. But if he was rabbi, huh? but, but there are rabbis like that. I never heard of huh? Okay, but it, it puts a little, yeah. still puts a little. Well, the people hey, around them were clearly fraud. Whether or not he knew it is debatable. Yes. So if he dealt with somebody who was reputable, who had references, all right, that takes him off the hook, all right, as uh -huh. opposed to taking him off the hook in every case where he might have bought from somebody who could have been shady, but it looked like, oh, maybe it was just a great deal. Alright. It's kinda of like a, it's almost like the halfway point, almost like a medium. Really, point. that's what Madoff was Madoff was it was a great deal, it was an, everyone he was well, reputable. There's always gonna be somebody who has references right. that might yeah, he was out of the SEC, right. he was like uh, he was But it doesn't know but at least it's at least it's putting some kind of uh, onus on the buyer to do a little bit more right. effort. So what is so what's bothering you about the rabbis? You saw As opposed to the way the rabbis have done now is he the buyer really has no onus if right. it was done in good faith, he has no onus. But, if faith, it, but still, I'm he, saying he if, he, if there was reason that he should have spent, let's say this guy was, you know, the guy's giving 24% returns on the investment, then there's reason to suspect. They say, right, anything made of, he was giving 10% straight for, for 10 years, 20, 15 years or something. Never gave less than ten percent. So maybe that's the question. Is what they want? Let's say he sold a Rolex for ten percent off in the market. It's not the point. Over there, the point is right. not the amount off. The point is the guy's it. going like this on the subway, when and he has uh, he's a of certain culture, well, and there's an issue. Subway. I mean, the, the rabbis were worried about the marketplace, the shook. So even the shook that mm -hmm. could have been. Yes, but again, the point is, the point is, if you have no reason to believe it's stolen, then you're saying you're off the hook. That's what they're saying. But there is due process, meaning due diligence that you have to do if there's something to be suspected. Well, anything that used would be considered. I mean, if you had something right. used, you right. could have been stolen. Walk stone. in the porn shop. I don't have to, I don't have to check. So the assumption is it's gotten legal. Again, if there's reason to suspect it wasn't legal, that's where there's an issue. You have to have reason to suspect. Okay, now, so again, the two, so the exceptions would be, like we're saying, if he was made under suspicious circumstances. Number two, this wouldn't be applicable to a gift. So when you make a charitable donation, so this whole thing is not applicable anymore because what's the Takana Shashuk? Really, it belongs to the original owner, we're saying. It always stays in the hands of the original owner. The, the fact that the thief gave it, took, stole it from someone else and now gives it to charity, it still belongs to the original owner. The rabbis came along and said, because we're concerned about commerce and people having a total loss in a case where bought, someone bought something in good faith, then it, the 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 the, the one the, who the victim can't go to the innocent bystander, okay? But that's only by a purchase. If it was done as a gift, it's it's very clear this wouldn't be applicable. It still belongs to the original owner. That means I can go back to the innocent bystander, take the gift. So someone technically, according to this, someone donated something to charity. It's not a sale. There's no takana sashuk there. The rabbis weren't concerned. They weren't concerned about commerce. In the case of a gift, a charitable donation, technically the the owner, the original owner, has every right to go back to the charity, take back his money, or whatever was stolen. 
Okay, and this is the Shulchan Aruch codifies this. Number three, it says a manager generously gave you know his Ponzi schemes, people ripping people off in investments is not a new concept. Believe it or not, it existed in the times of the Shulchan Aruch. Nothing new in this world. Uh, made of to invent Ponzi's. Right, number three, it says a manager generously gave an unauthorized gift from his investors' funds. Okay, the Shulchan Aruch rules. Okay, this is written in 650 years ago. The recipient must return the gift. Okay. Now the question, that's, the, that's what the Shulchan Aruch of Cairo says. The question is, is the arguments in the various, interp- in the uh, commentary on the Shulchan Aruch as to how that works. In a, the Shach says, the commentary on the Shulchan Aruch says, regardless of whether he knew it was stolen or not, either way, he has to return it. Okay, B, the Prisha, another commentary says, no, he's not liable, he's unaware it was stolen. So those, that's this argument. C says, if the gift was still extant, all agree it must be returned. So this is a very key point relevant to these laws, and which is, and this, I believe, maybe Gary can help us out here, the, because I don't know, someone told me something, but I'm not sure if you know what he's talking about, attorney, not all attorneys know what they're talking about, so the, the, he said like this, meaning that the halacha says like this, um, when I steal something from you, as long as that object is still in existence, okay, so I stole your car, as long as I didn't, I made no physical, material changes to your car, it still belongs to you. And when you come to me, or if I sold it, I have that car, you have the right to get back that car. Once I took the car, and now I painted it hot pink, and I pimped up the wheels, okay? I changed, the, I made a material change to the object, then I still, of course, have to uh, reimburse you for what was stolen from you, but that car no longer belongs to me. Once a material change was done to the stolen, ob- to the stolen item, it now belongs to me. Okay, that's what the halacha says. Okay, in American law, I'm not sure. I don't someone, think so, no. I think someone's told me that, that, that if there's a material change, I only have to give you back the value of what I stole. But what would I value then? I think that, that, that could be one option. Uh, meaning I you, guess... You, uh, I don't have to give you back your car at that point. The point is, okay, meaning... It, it meaning would it'd be more complicated than that. If, the, if, there was a re, if there was a defect in title, so you should have known, then no. Who, the thief? Sure no, they fire. If the buyer didn't check the title, okay, I mean, so and it was obvious that it was stolen. So if that's you buy a Rolex and you don't check with the uh, Rolex manufacturer to see if it's stolen, and you put diamonds on it and stuff like that, or you pimp out a car, or you build a building on it, that's like it's different. But yeah, no, and any to it, there's a title ownership to it. Whether you're talking yeah. about a watch. So the point about, so the says, I'll tell you what the says, and I, again, yeah. I don't know the American law, but the says very clearly, anytime, if the item is still extant, that means it's still in existence, nothing changed, then it's yours, it still belongs to you. Once I go ahead and make a shino in it, okay, I, I make some type of material change in the item, I was conned with that shino, it means the thief uh, now acquired it. It doesn't mean you don't have to pay, pay back. Of course you pay back, but the point is it's no longer your item. Once I pimped up your car and I painted a hot pink and I put on spokes on my tires, it's now, it's now I acquired the car with the material change. I have to pay back for what I stole from you, but it's no longer considered your car halakhically as far as ownership is concerned. Now, if you, if, listen, if I want to return to you, I can, if you, if you are willing to accept it. Yeah, yeah. But the point is you don't have to be willing to accept it, it's no longer your item. Okay, so, so, um, so that's what the Shulchan Aruch is saying here. It's still extent, all agree it must be returned. Once I made a material change, that's what D says, if there was a material change, machinery, the victim has no claim, it can only recover from the thief. So now once I made a material change, and now I sold it to Scotty, I sold your car, you surely can't go to him anymore, because again, you know, and halakhically, you're no longer the owner once I made a material change in a stolen item. Now, 
where this is relevant, just as a side and parenthetical point, Pesach is the halacha is on Pesach, or like all year round. Any you can't be, you can't fulfill a mitzvah through an avera. Right? So let's say I steal matzahs, I stole matzahs, and eat those matzahs at the same. So technically, I can't. I haven't fulfilled my mitzvah of matzah. Torah says you have to eat matzahs because it's yours, because the matzah that I stole belongs to you, and, and so it's not mine. So it's I, I'm fulfilling my mitzvah of matzah through the aver. Now th- that's normally the way it works. Is meaning, let's say before. So now, let's say I steal the matzah and then I decide I'm gonna put some chocolate chips on them and I sprinkle it up. So I made a material change of the matzah, so now it belongs to me. At this point, I could fulfill my mitzvah of the matzah by eating that matzah because because now I own it. Because you did what? A act? Right. Meaning, meaning no. The point is that you can't a mitzvah above avera means that the act of the avera is the act of the mitzvah. It has to be done simultaneously. So meaning, if I stole the matzah six months ago and now I'm fulfilling a mitzvah of matzah, so technically I, that's not called a mitzvah above aver. That's not called I'm doing a mitzvah through a sin. Even though I stole it, listen, it's wrong, obviously. And, but as far as fulfilling the mitzvah, I have fulfilled the mitzvah. I'm an idiot. You know, you're going to hell for stealing it, but the mitzvah is still a valid mitzvah. It's only when the mitzvah and the aver come simultaneously. So the question becomes, um, if I steal matzah, so what they say is you, when you're chewing it, technically you're changing the material. Once you have you fulfill the mitzvah, when you put it in your mouth. The mitzvah, the question is the mitzvah of matzah is really when you swallow it. When you fulfill the matzah. So at that point, it's materially changed. So they speak about this case that technically it's not you fulfilling. Even with stolen matzah, you can't fulfill your mitzvah of matzah. It's not called a mitzvah of Not No one's condoning it, of course. But the point is that what we're saying is legally, technically speaking, you have fulfilled the mitzvah. It goes even further. Yeah. In Sukkot, though, a lot of people were cutting bamboo from like a field, uh, you know, where it's just weed. And you know, you know, you could safely assume the person doesn't want it. Bamboo yeah. is considered a weed. Well, depends. I once had a story. The first year I was in Houston, um, they, ran, I was in America, they told me, you want to get palms fronds? You go behind the, it's the bank there on the corner of uh, Braze Ridge and, and, and uh, Belfort. It's the bank on the corner there. Crossing yeah. the gun. What's the bank? Is they were campus. using it for it's a campus uh, bank. The, there know. was a tree behind them, and they told me, "Oh, you go cut." I started cutting off the palms, and the, the bank, bank manager came out screaming at me. That's stealing. How much stealing? So that would have been if I would have used those palms. I didn't realize. I thought it didn't. I didn't know it belonged to the but bank. But Rabbi Wonder said even further. You know, if you if you're not a hundred percent sure that you own it, like uh, taking it from a field where it's just growing as a weed, you shouldn't use it for a supper. Right. Well, and a lot of people, uh, you know, uh, you know. That's a problem. So that's yeah, mixed up out there, right? Yeah. That, that could be. But cool. in that situation, well, you know, no one uh, uses these uh, reeds as, uh, you know, it's a weed. Uh, yeah, but still, generally you speaking, stole, you, you can't go out there. It's, it's a sign, no to, trespassing. And no, these were fields problem. where yeah. there were power lines, probably owned well, by. You need to know. So it belongs to the city. Does the city want you cutting it? So this question. No, the point said, is, he said, not, not even you know, you have to, you have to, to get own permission. It. Right, you have to get permission from the city. I had one. There can't be any doubt. So the bottom line is, if you make a material change in the item, then you're you're going to be kind of, and therefore won't be mitzvah of error. And so, the, so here too, as far as this is concerned, um, we'll talk. We'll, we'll get how it works here. But again, now because care with money might be different. So getting back, well, let's get back to the. Ponzi scheme. So bad investor number four on the sheet here. It says like this. Excuse me. If the scammer paid early investors profits, which were illusory, meaning there was they were all fake. He was taking it from the other money, bringing it in. That's what 
Ponzi scheme is, right? So he's paying profits to his early investors, to initial investors, with money, new money is bringing in from the new investors, so they're illusory profits. They even treat it like a gift to investor. They're treated like a gift to investor, even though he took it in good faith, since the partnership was a scam. So meaning there was no purchase here. So if you basically, let's say you had no contract with this investor, you just went in, he told you, okay, give me, he's a friend of yours. Usually Ponzi schemes are with friends or people you know, your great uncle. So, so you brother-in-law. So you're giving him the money, okay? And he's saying, okay, and he comes back to you, you know, uh, six months later, he's giving you, you know, 12% on your investment. Okay, so there's no contract here. It's not a sale. He's basically, the whole thing is a scam. He got the money. There's no, there's no business taking place here at all, really. He basically got the money from the next set of investors and he's giving you back. So that's totally like a gift. So the Takana Susha, the Takana Sashuk wouldn't be relevant in that case because, again, there's no commerce taking place. There's no commerce, technically. Okay, but B is if the scammer had a legitimate partnership with the investor and you stole funds to buy him out, so let's say we went into business together and you said, okay, I'm going to get you. And meanwhile, it turns out you're doing a Ponzi scheme to, to, to get returns on the business and you use that money to buy me out as a partner. So that would be the case where the, the, this Takana that would be commerce. In that case, the Takana Sashuk would be relevant and then there would be able to be a clawback. Um, the, the, if I got the money for the buyout, those original investors, second row of investors would come to me now and be able to take that money back. Okay? Um, thus, in contrast to civil law, even principal payments accepted in good faith may be clawbacks. That's what we said before. Clawbacks in American law is you could only claw back the, the interest made, not the principal. Okay? With all clawbacks, you can't go after the principal. And Allah was saying it's irrelevant. Even the principal would be able to be clawed back. Um, because, again, it all belongs to the original owner. Because it's stolen, stolen money that he's paying me back with. So even though he's paying me back my principal plus, since it's stolen, it belongs to the original owner, I would now have to, uh, would have to go, I, I would be able to claw it back. As opposed to Western law, where it's only, the clawback is, is only on the interest, not on the principal. Okay, so there's a major difference in halacha. Uh, uh, is there something like a statute of limitation? Because, you know, you may have been doing this so long that some people, Listen. you know, were before the statute of limitations, and I know they're arguing, look, uh, it was before the statute of limitations, therefore you should only be able to call back according to the last five years. And then the other argument was I the don't, discovery Allah, rule. I uh, don't think it has a statute of limitations. As far so as I've never seen far. anything about it. Yeah. Saying if it's stolen, it's stolen. There is, well, I'll tell you, it will be relevant in a second. Years. Here's the kinds of years. That means that the person gave up. So that, that is relevant. It's not a number of years statute of limitations, it's depending on psychology of the victim. So we'll get there in a second. It's a good, so that's, number, that's number five. So this is very relevant. So there's a concept, a very important concept, which Gary is touching upon, which is called Yish um, in, in Halacha, which is really, when we find this, it's actually a big breast liver thing today, but Yish means despair. I always say, Nachman says, don't despair, never despair. Right, so that's a breast of a nice psychological philosophy. Not going to get into that. There's not a Kabbalistic class um, or a breast of class. Uh, but there's a concept in halacha called Yish. That's where Nachman gets it from, which is the Torah talks about, as we know, find, we don't believe in finders, keepers, losers, weepers. If you find something in the street, you need to return it to its rightful owner. Now, that's only if it's identifiable. Why? Even though the Torah says you have to, you have to return a lost object. If there's no identity, if a guy drops a $100 bill on the street, or in the supermarket, he knows he's never going to see it again. There's nothing identifiable on the down, unless, you know, he traced the, the serial numbers, which people today do. They have this whole website where you put in your serial numbers and, 
everyone's supposed to sign in when they get the bill and whatever crazy thing. But but assuming regular cash, person drops it in the middle of downtown Houston or Manhattan, there's no way he knows he's never going to see that again. Okay, he's never going to see that again. Um, okay, so you basically gave up. You know, actually, interesting. A, a guy told me his wife. When I gave this class last week to a group, they told me that his wife left her purse in a taxi in Manhattan. Okay? And they, they filed a claim. All the jewelry was in it, like a couple thousand dollars. They filed a claim with their insurance company, and they got payback from the insurance. And uh, a year later, they just got a box in the mail, no return address, with her purse. A year later, <laughs> with everything in it. It was missing some cash, maybe, but Julie was in there, everything else was in there. So he had his question was to me was, does he have to give the money back to the insurance company? Does he have to give the insurance company back? That was his, his but he had question. already forgotten about it, or he didn't forget about it. Yeah, well, he was miage. The question is, right, so that was what I was saying. It, was he got paid? Probably, probably, it's probably a subordination agreement in there that once the insurance pays, the right to collect and uh, find it goes to them, so they might have ownership to it. Probably that's the how insurance company is, but it's interesting, so I was saying maybe because once he was Miyaish, it no longer belonged to him. You know, it's, so that's what the, let me just explain the law of Yish. The law of Yish says that if someone drops something that's unidentifiable, then you can keep it. Why? Because the assumption is the guy gave up. Once the original owner despaired on ever finding his lost object, then it belongs to you. That's the Allah. So despair, Yish, now get, makes you acquire it. So cash, the assumption is everyone is Miyaish immediately. If I drop on a dollar bill, there's no chance it's ever gonna. I'm ever gonna find it again. I'm not, I never. I'm immediately once I find out I lost it, I know I'm never gonna find it again. Okay, and therefore the finder automatically can keep it because the assumption is human psychology is the guy despaired, and therefore it's yours. Now if the guy lost his wallet, that's different. It doesn't despair. He has his license in it. Maybe someone will be nice. Lose your cell phone, even though it's the newest iPhone. There's a chance. Like hey, my wife has it. She left her cell phone. She lost it in Walgreens. Someone called her. The guy said. I'll only give it, give it back to you if you give me a reward. <laughs> and he wanted a reward. Yeah, but he found his elf and he called him. But he's, he wants something for right, so, so, But the point is, you don't despair because it has identifying, identifiable things which if someone is a nice person, they'll, they'll might return to you. So you're not giving up so easily. So therefore, the guy who finds it can't keep it because there's no use. Okay, now, that's where your time thing comes in. We'll get there in a second. But just the rule, if a person eats food that another person has stolen, if the owner of the stolen food had not yet despaired from retrieving them at the time food was eaten, then he can cl- claim the value either from the thief or the person who ate the food. Again, because he never lost his original ownership. But once he was meyayish, that's the verb of yish, he despaired on ever finding it, so now it belongs, it's no longer his anymore. It doesn't belong to him. Therefore, the guy, he can't go back to the guy who ate it because he gave up on finding it and it's not his anymore. At that point, okay. So this is where Gary's thing comes in, as far as uh, putting up a time. Uh, what was the word used? A, a statute of limitations. limitations. It's not really a statute of limitations, but if it's, let's say, it's 20 years later, where the person who had his money stolen gave up on ever getting that that money, so then that would be applicable because I can't go claw it back now because it's no longer mine. Once I once I was me, it's no longer mine. Okay, that's the point. Okay. So that's where it's relevant. Now, so thus, number six says on the back page, that's if a Ponzi investor gave it to charity before the client was even aware of the scheme. So you can't say years, that's called Yish Shalem Midas. If the person never even was aware or stolen from him, 
So I was giving money to Madoff. Like you said, 10 years ago, I never even dreamed. I, I thought it was great, the guy's giving back. I, I had no idea, I didn't even, I didn't think about that it might be a, a scam. Okay, so therefore I couldn't be Miyayish, I never despaired. It's only after you find out that someone was scamming you, that's when you can despair of ever getting money. But until that point, if you, if you don't know something fishy's going on, then clearly you're not going to despair. You're from Iowa, you don't realize it, it takes you five, an extra year to realize someone's trying to rip you off. Okay, so, so then you couldn't, that means there's no use. Okay, so even, so before the client was even aware of the scheme, because the client certainly has not despaired of retrieving his assets, he can claim his money from either the thief, the investor, or the third party, because he hasn't despaired. Number seven says, so now, okay, so now there's a big caveat in all this. The major caveat in all this is that is a, is a very, throws everything, throws everything down the drain to some extent, which is, goes back to what we said before, that the item you stole, in order for it to be considered the first owner, still has to be an extent. So what Allah talks about is cash is really never, is never an extent. Because once I give someone money, cash, but if I give you money, you don't pay me back the money, okay? You don't pay me back the same money cash I gave you. Cash is a word for it, a legal word. It's uh, fungible, not, right? Cash is fungible, right? So Allah says the same thing. Allah says cash being fungible, therefore, is never really the same item. It's never an extent. Once I gave someone cash, and he now put it in his bank account. Now he's paying the investors with other money. It's not even though, yes, the money is traceable to the same account, but it's fungible. So I'm not paying him the same cash, so it's like I pimped up your car. Same thing as if I painted your car hot pink. It's, it's not the same cash. It's no longer that item anymore, so it can't really belong to you. That's what it says in 7. All only relevant where investor gave cash and scam would deliver that cash to others. So if, if, and it's obviously made up, it wouldn't work, but there you have sometimes, so the guy took the cash home and stored it under his bed and literally gave that same cash to the investors, then you'd have all these applicable rules. But as long as he's now spending the cash and putting it into a, a fund, some account, and then paying the investors with other monies, so then that's, that's not your original money. So therefore, no, it's, we're still, it's similar to the case where stolen objects changed hands or changed form. In which case, the thief has to compensate the victim, but the object is considered the thief's property. So charity has no legal relationship to the investor. Okay, so the invest, the original investor, the victim, who lost his money, can't go back to Adasa now and take back the money, according to this, because the cash that was paid to Adasa is not the same cash that he gave in, per se. So the whole clawback concept falls into question, halakhically, according to this. But... So, so technically speaking, if you were, if you were following Allah, I can't go to YU and Adas and to call back, even though that's what they're doing now. Adas lost is supposedly giving has to give back like ten million dollars of stuff they. You have been listening to the MP3 project from the Jewish Ethic Institute. For a complete selection of our lectures please visit our website at j-ethics.org. Shalom.